Good morning. We are really close to being done with Luke, I think. Only a couple of chapters left. I am reading from Luke 22, and I'm starting at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of elders of the people gathered together, both chief, priests, and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So, they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Good morning. I really didn't know who to expect Thanksgiving weekend. I was thinking that we were just going to have like a little get-together kumbaya circle or something. But it's nice to see all of you. And if you are new here, we at Regeneration, we just go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So if you're wondering, why are we covering this segment of scripture? This is really weird. Why aren't we covering some kind of theme or some topic or something? This is just where we're at in the scripture. So welcome and let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. We cherish it. We love it. And God, we ask that you would speak through it to us, not just for information, not just for conviction, that we would be changed, that our minds would be changed, that our actions would follow. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were reading the Gospel of Luke up until this point and you didn't know how Luke ended, you'd be thinking that the mission of Jesus is taking a nosedive right now. You'd be thinking this is not going anywhere good uh, because what has happened so far in Luke chapter 22 doesn't appear very favorable for Jesus or his disciples at all. And to think back to what has happened so far, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, totally sold out, right? He betrayed Jesus. And Jesus told them at the Passover meal that one of them was going to betray him and instead of them fighting about is it you or is it you they're fighting about who's the greatest in the kingdom 
And so these guys have no clue what's going on. And, and then he instructed his disciples to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and they fall asleep. And then you get to verse 44, and Luke recorded, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so things just don't look very good for Jesus, don't look very good for the Christian movement or the mission at all at this point. But then you look back to verse 22 in Luke chapter 9, and it reads, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And so here we are, as Jesus has suffered and agonized through much spiritually, psychologically, mentally, emotionally, physically, and here he enters into suffering even further. And so this is where we pick up in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now this is just cruelty happening here. This is just cruel bullying. This is just cruel abuse. And maybe some of you have been on the giving end of this. Where you enjoyed messing with someone who wasn't able to stand up for themselves. And you need to repent if you're on the giving side of this. But I would also tend to think that many of us have been on the receiving end of this, and the receiving end of a group's cruelty or someone's cruelty towards you, being bullied or made fun of or, or picked on or beat up or pushed, uh, harassed, verbally abused. And Jesus knows how it feels because he experienced it. He was deserted by his friends. He knows how it feels to be bullied, to be picked on, to be harassed, to be beaten. And he experienced being part of this cruel game that these guys had. And in these holding cells, not so much the Jewish holding cells, but the Roman holding cells, you would find that the soldiers would play games with each other, and they would play games with the prisoners. Now, you might be thinking, like, oh, how nice, they're playing games with the prisoner. It's not like they're playing Monopoly. Their games were a little different. So the games that they would play with one another, they'd gamble. They'd gamble with one another. But the games that they would play with their prisoners... They were meant to inflict harm. They were meant to cause pain. It was meant to entertain them. And so if you can imagine just a bunch of frat boys getting together, picking on uh, the nerd house, right, Revenge of the Nerds or something, they're getting him, and they're just playing a game with that person. And what you can do nowadays is you can even go to a Roman fortress, like the Antonio Fortress down in Jerusalem, and you can look on the floors and you can see that there are these games that are etched inside the floor in those kind of fortresses, in those holding cells. And you can see the type of cruel games that these guys would play. Or Like one of them was rolling these dice into this little etched thing, and depending on what it was, that's the type of cruelty or pain they would inflict on their victims. And so this is what the Romans did. If you look at their history, if you look at things like the gladiator games, this is what they did. They used people as entertainment, prisoners of war, prisoners, criminals. They would force them to fight to the death, right, for their entertainment. This is what was happening in the Roman Empire. So they were used to exploiting people by forcing them into these types of games or into slave labor or something like that. And so this is kind of what's happening with Jesus. You know, they blindfolded him, they beat him, they mocked him, and they're telling Jesus, hey, prophesy, hey, which one of us hit you? Pop, pop. And they're just messing with him, blaspheming God. And here Jesus is full of love, and they're full of hatred. 
Isaiah prophesied about how Jesus would be received in Isaiah chapter 53. We've read that whole chapter once before. I just want to pick out one verse from Isaiah 53, and that's verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Peter, who denied Jesus, what was broken up upon his denial of Jesus, and then he was inspired by Jesus' resurrection, and he was empowered by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. He wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. When he was reviled, Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Now you would think that in human history, we would evolve. And we would have learned how to be compassionate and humane and gracious and merciful and loving. But I don't think that we're all that different from those who kept Jesus in custody, are we? I don't think we're all that different today. You look at what happens in the world today. You look at what bullying happens in schools and what happens in cyberspace. And and no one can legitimately argue that we're better people than the humans were thousands of years ago. I don't think that for a second. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the same. We're all sinners. Nothing has changed. We are not godly people. We transgress against the things of God. How often do we overlook the marginalized in our society or the lonely in our society? You know, Thanksgiving just passed, right? And some of us had family and we had friends to celebrate with. But how did we do with our church family? How are we looking out for one another in our church family? Now, there were some in our church family who didn't have a place to go. And so I want to ask ourselves, how did we do? How did we do with that? Now, I've heard some really cool stories of some people being invited into others' homes. And I've also heard some really sad stories, though. You know, sad stories of loneliness. And that was only, you know, two days ago, three days ago. And and as a pastor, it, it hurts me. It saddens me to hear those sad stories. And it helps me to be joyful about those happier stories. But you know what? It's a hard issue as to how we treat each other and how we feel about each other here. And the really sad thing to me is that no matter what we do as a church, no one is ever happy. We've tried all sorts of things. We've tried hosting things at the church, and then we get the feedback of, why don't you guys have it in homes? All right, well, uh, we'll have it in homes. So we started having things in homes, and guess what we started hearing? It's not big enough. All right, so we just can't win. That, by definition, is called crazy-making, and crazy-making will be covered in the life skills class. So please attend. (laughs) And so one year, I thought I was going to be a good pastor and host a Thanksgiving meal at my home where I cooked and served everybody. And so I started to think about people who didn't have family in the Bay Area, and I invited them over to our house. And so my wife and I were thinking, like, you know, we're such a good pastor and pastor's wife. Look at us. We're so awesome. And then the following Sunday, guess what we heard? Why weren't we invited? Maybe because you have family here. Well, I don't know. 
So another year, we didn't host anything because we didn't want people to feel like we were being partial. Then what did we start to hear? Why didn't you guys host something at your house this year? And so this past Thanksgiving, we were at my mother-in-law's house, who is a widow, and I really don't expect anyone to fault us for spending Thanksgiving with her. But you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. And then some of you feel called into ministry and you want to be a pastor. All I have to say to you is, I will pray for you. Because you are dealing with sinners. And let me tell you something about sinners. They are sheep, except some of them have rabies. And they bite. Right? So, now let's just read on and observe that sinners not only abuse and they bully people, but they also conspire to do illegal, immoral, and unethical things. Verse 66. When day came... The assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said. Now this council was the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was the highest court for the Jews, and this council was in a really big hurry to interrogate and to prosecute Jesus. Now, in order to get a more comprehensive account of of what's happening here, you have to read the other gospel accounts, but you'll notice that if you do that, Luke leaves out some details. But what they all have in common was this hurriedness, that they wanted to do this quickly, and they rushed. And the rush was because they felt this momentum, and they felt that they got something because what they did is illegal. This is not a legal action that they've taken. They did this under the cover of darkness because they wanted to get away with it. They didn't do it in broad daylight, and they were getting away with what they couldn't get away with in the open. So here they are, and and you know what? Their plan is working. Judas did find him. Judas did identify him. They did get him, and so they're keeping this momentum going of their evil plot, and and they got to kind of keep it going along. Now, these guys knew the legal system really, really well. These are some smart, smart people here. These guys are lawyers, a lot of them. And so it was illegal to interrogate, to prosecute after dark. So in order to do this first thing, if you notice in that verse, when day came, they didn't want to bother with going looking for Jesus because if he went to the temple, then they got to deal with all the mob and the crowd stuff. We got to do it at night and at the first day. And when the day opens, then we got to just bring him before the court. We can't mess with that. So we got to do it at night, and we got to bring him in, and we need to have him in custody so that when day comes, we can present him. So they conspired with each other as how they were going to pull this off and what evidence they were going to use against Jesus to sentence him to death. Now, these guys weren't just curious about what Jesus was doing. These guys weren't just checking Jesus out. These guys were putting a plan together to kill Jesus. That's what they wanted to do. Now, I can respect people who are genuinely seeking Jesus, who are wanting to learn more about Jesus, people who may not know who he is, but they're interested in investigating the claims and what he proclaimed. But there are others, like these religious leaders, who have already made their decisions, and they want to rid of Jesus in their lives. Not investigating. There are people who are very hostile to Jesus, very hostile towards the gospel. Now, if you're here to investigate Jesus, I'm really confident that the evidence will prove substantial, will prove plentiful as to leading you to believe that he is God. But that doesn't mean that you're going to accept that. If this were merely an intellectual argument, there is an abundance of evidence 
thousands and thousands of years of evidence. But this is not an intellectual issue. This is a faith issue. This is a moral issue. This is not intellectual. These guys conspire against Jesus for years. They worked with a traitor. They conducted a mob-style arrest for someone who was not guilty of any crime. And you can reason yourself out of faith even when the evidence is staring you at the face and it's presented itself to you and it's telling you a story because these guys did. And these guys are smart guys. These guys know the law. They know the scriptures. They know all this stuff. I mean, you look at these guys. Jesus is in custody and he's beaten But what's the charge? Don't you have to have a charge to arrest somebody? The police can't just come by and say like, oh, I'm going to take you in custody. Why? You have to have a probable cause. Right? You can't just be taken in. There is no charge. They just take them. If anyone's to be arrested, it's probably Peter because there was assault there. There was assault and battery there. He cut off Malchus's ear. But they arrest Jesus. So this case is bogus. This case should be dismissed. Instead of a charge, these guys are trying to figure out what we can't charge him for anything. Can, can we get him to incriminate himself? Can he say one of those things? Say something? And then we'll get at him? Verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us incriminate yourself because we don't have anything against you so can you say something but he said to them if i tell you you will not believe and if i ask you you will not answer at this point these guys must be thinking like man he's he's doing this again he's doing this thing again like he's outsmarting us again because jesus is really good at this kind of stuff isn't he you look at this was jesus dodging the question i mean what was he doing right Jesus knew exactly where these guys were coming from. These guys wanted him dead. So Jesus told them, if I tell you that I am the Christ, you wouldn't believe it anyway. And if I asked you to further explain yourself, you wouldn't answer me. Because it happened before. A similar thing happened in Luke chapter 20. You remember this. Let me read this for us. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe in him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered, They did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by the authority which I do these things. And so these guys must have been thinking like, man, he's doing it again. Because they were always trying to corner Jesus, right? Always trying to pin him back. And, and here they are trying to do it again. And like Jesus doesn't know what's happening. I mean, he, he could have just ended there. And then like, all right, set me free. He's just bogus. Not only that, I'm going to get you guys back. Do you see this black guy? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prosecute you for that. Like Jesus couldn't outreason them, like he couldn't outdebate them, like he couldn't outsmart them. They're trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself, and Jesus could easily get himself out of that jam, but this time he chose not to. Because it's time. Back in Luke 20, back in the other spots, it was not time, but now he sees the cross on the horizon, and it's time. 
And he prepared himself in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows. He asked the Father, you know, take this from me. If it's your will, and if it's not, then it wasn't. And so it's his time. In verse 69, But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power of God. Now what did Jesus mean by this? Son of Man was a title that Jesus gave himself. And like I said, these guys aren't dummies. These guys are extremely smart. These guys are very well educated. They know the scriptures really, really well. And so they picked up on what Jesus was saying. They knew the book of Daniel. They knew of Daniel's prophecy. Jesus was tapping into their understanding of world history as well as their understanding of the book of Daniel. Now in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, Daniel wrote about four beasts who represent the four kingdoms ruling over the earth in world history. And looking back at Daniel's writing, we know that this matches up with world history. Some liberal scholars would argue, oh, Daniel wrote that after those things happened. And No, 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 no. Daniel wrote those things before those civilizations and empires ever existed. Well, actually, he lived through one of them. Now, the first kingdom is the Babylonian Empire. This was represented by a lion and an eagle. Now, if you turn to Daniel chapter 7, you will read about this. In the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 49, verses 19 through 22, he used a lion and an eagle as a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you even go to the British Museum today, you will see the winged lions of Babylon and the artifacts from that time. The second beast was a bear. This is representing the Medo-Persian Empire. This is after Daniel's time. Then the third beast is a leopard representing the Greek Empire and, and Alexander the Great. And then lastly is the fourth beast with ten horns, and that represented the Roman Empire, who they were currently being ruled by. These Jewish scholars knew this stuff. And if you're interested in studying the book of Daniel, there's a study going on in one of the home groups right now being led by Ben Jordan and Andrew Wang. And you can go attend that. It's in your bulletin. But I will go through Luke eventually. Let me do some more Daniel. So Jesus gave them this history reminder. Four beasts, right? Remember? You guys remember? Babylonian, Medo-Persian, Greek. We're currently in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire's rule. And then he ties it into a spiritual reminder because in Daniel chapter 7, verses 11 through 14, there's this little horn. Now this little horn represents the Antichrist. This is after the Roman Empire. And this little horn is conquered by the Son of Man. Look at it in Daniel chapter 7. The term Son of Man is used there. And this is a description of the transition from human dominion on earth to divine dominion. And this happens as the Son of Man comes and exercises dominion over the earth. And Jesus is making this claim as the Son of Man here in Luke chapter 22. As Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter 7, that the Son of Man would succeed the reign of not only the fourth beast, Rome, but of everlasting, of the little horn. That he is going to rule. He is the Son of God. He is the right hand of God. And it's important to understand context in order to understand the Bible. If you do not have context of Daniel 7, you wouldn't understand what he meant. I'm the Son of Man. You'd be thinking, like, what's the big deal? I'm a Son of Man too. And so are you. 
Right? So we have to be able to figure these things out and study our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation. You need the whole counsel of God. It concerns me when people interpret the Bible out of context because then it's misinterpreted. Right? And it turns out that it's more about how I feel about something or this means to me. I, what are you talking about? That is so dangerous. That's how people are led astray into believing unbiblical things. Right? So how do you feel or think has to correspond with the context of the Bible? If it is outside of that, then you got to check it. Right? So within these home groups and within kind of these small groups and things like that, call your Bible studies leaders out on that stuff. It's not how you feel. Right? It's not what you think. How does it match up to the biblical context? Now back to our text here. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? Yes, he's saying that. They want him to incriminate himself. They want him to say that. And he said to them, you say that I am. These guys knew the book of Daniel. So they were able to connect what Jesus was saying about being the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power of God and being the Son of God. They understood what Jesus meant with His declaration of being the Son of Man. They knew what that meant. And so Jesus took that title and that position from the book of Daniel, applied it to Himself, and since they were spiritually and scripturally literate, they understood what Jesus was saying. And so they confronted Jesus with His own declaration, and Jesus didn't deny their conclusion. When they connect being the Son of Man and being the Son of God to Jesus, Jesus knew what they do with that declaration. He knew they were going to kill Him. They were going to kill him for it. And just because they got the right answer didn't mean they were going to do the right thing. Because at that moment, you'd think that if they recognized that all of them would fall down on their knees and they would worship God. Right? You would think that. But they don't. People can have all the right answers and they can connect all the spiritual dots that lead them to Jesus, but it doesn't mean they're going to do the right thing. Some will get more hostile. Some of their hearts will harden more. Some of them will fight even harder. And you and I are not going to convince anyone that Jesus is God. We can't do that. That is God's work. That's the Holy Spirit's work. We are to be obedient in sharing the gospel, and God does the conversion. So don't get frustrated if you're doing your thing and people aren't coming to Christ. I mean, look at yourself, how you're presenting yourself, and if you're being hostile, if you're being a jerk, then yeah, change those things. But if you're just kind of going about faithfully and obediently sharing the gospel and things aren't happening, keep praying. Keep doing it. Verse 71, Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from His own lips. So they got Jesus' confession. And they didn't need any other witnesses, so they thought. Now these Jewish leaders were really happy to get Jesus' confession, but this really didn't mean anything to the Romans. And the Romans are the ones in power, and the Romans don't care whether Jesus says He's the Son of God or not. They don't care. All right, Son of God, hoo hoo, look, I'm in power. Like, I don't care. They don't care as long as Jesus is not blaspheming Caesar. Now, that's a big deal. 
And they don't care about Jesus in terms of what he said in relation to a Jewish God, but they do care in what he says against Caesar. And so these religious leaders knew about this, so they would have to conspire further and figure out how are we going to tie his blasphemy towards us to how the Romans interpret blasphemy towards Caesar. How is that going to happen? Or how are we going to pose that Jesus is a threat to the empire? And so they needed to pin something on Jesus that made him look guilty before the eyes of the Roman authorities and something worthy of death. Because the Jews weren't allowed to sentence people to death. Only the Romans could. They didn't have that authority. This was a Roman thing. Only the Romans could pursue capital punishment. Now, Roman law was the only law that could do that. Jewish law wasn't allowed to do that. So they needed to conspire to have the Roman law sentence Jesus to death. Chapter 23, verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. Now, what's really strange about this is that This whole company is comprised of different religious factions. Factions who historically didn't get along with each other, they start to cooperate with one another. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they get together. This is a really strange thing because their division is over scriptural doctrine. Now, if any of you are familiar with another person who has a different spiritual doctrine stance you know that they are not very friendly to talk with. Right? You know that. So, a Calvinist and an Arminianist, not a good combo. Right? An egalitarian or a complementarian, not a good combo. Different doctrinal stances, they get together and they just start bickering and arguing about all this kind of stuff. They just don't tend to like each other. They have these different stances. Right? Pastor-led churches, congregational-led churches. Well, the pastor's just outnumbered on that one, so I wouldn't stand there. Anyway, so they don't like each other. And so these guys, Sadducees, Pharisees, they come together because of their hatred for Jesus. Their hatred for Jesus is larger than their hatred towards each other, than their doctrinal differences. Now you wonder how enemies can start working with each other. It's because they have a common enemy that they hate more. Right? People who work and they, they don't get along, but then there's someone that they don't like more. Okay, I'll team up with you. Let's get this guy. So these religious factions would put away their differences and they'd come together to put Jesus to death. Things aren't that different today. People do this all the time. There's a lot of movement towards uh, getting together and having an interfaith dialogue, which I'm not opposed to, which I have been a part of, because I often get invited to these gatherings, and so we talk and stuff. And I found that there is much acceptance to everyone represented except for Jesus. If you don't believe me, I invite you to come with me next time. Because once I say, Jesus said... I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John chapter 14, verse 6. All the hackles and the fangs. Ah! I thought it was in her faith. Isn't it in her faith? But there is a united hatred towards that exclusive biblical claim. People didn't like Jesus' exclusive claims back then, and they don't like them today. 
And you look at what these religious leaders say to Pilate. Verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. You see the manipulation of words. You see the maneuvering of their accusations so that it fits under Roman law. See, they're trying to make this connection between what they view as an offense to Jewish law with that to Roman law so that they could pursue the death penalty. Because were they really concerned about tribute to Caesar? They can care less. That guy's an idol, they think. That guy's a false prophet. That guy's, they don't care. Did they really care if Caesar was blasphemed? No, they probably liked it. But they spun their story so that they can apply toward offending Roman law when it really was their own Jewish law that they were concerned about, but they want that to fit. Verse 3, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now I think Pilate asks this in a kind of a surprised way. Like, are you king of the Jews? Because before him is this physically beaten, bludgeoned, bloody swollen, bruised man. So he's not asking in an accusatory way. Are you the king of the Jews? I think he's just really surprised because right before him is this beaten up guy. You're presenting me this guy as a king? Really? This guy's like weak. And you don't get into Pilate's position being dumb. I mean, this guy had some smarts. He knew how to maneuver his way into this position. This guy's a skilled politician. And so he saw through these guys. He knew what was up. He looks at them. He was like, Sadducees and Pharisees getting together? What do you guys have up your sleeve? Something's going on here. This is not right. Verse 4, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. See, Pilate knew this wasn't about justice. Pilate knew this wasn't a legitimate case. But you know what he did? He let his politics come before his character. He knew this case was baloney. He said, I find no guilt in this man. He already said that. But his politics were more important than his integrity. Look at verse 5. But they were urgent, saying, that hurriedness, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. And so Pilate started compromising under the pressure because he already said, I find no guilt in this man. So case closed. There's no guilt. What are we doing here? But Pilate wanted to save his political hide. Pilate wants to get a little bit further in his career. Now you recall that this is during the Passover feast. So Jerusalem's numbers are really inflated with Jewish pilgrims. People are coming from all over, coming to celebrate the Passover. And so there are many, many, many more people there than usual. And Rome is already on alert because these mass gatherings make them nervous. Because when these guys get together and it's easy to start this mob mentality and start a revolution doing this stuff. So if Pilate can't keep this crowd under control and it gets cuckoo, he's going to get it. He's going to get demoted. He's going to get removed. He's going to hear from Rome as a saying, you can't control these guys. Now, how many of us are like Pilate? Because a lot of you are bright. Many of you went to Cal. I wouldn't even be able to get into Cal. Kel saw my name and was like, oh, go back. Go to Stanford. But you know the difference between right and wrong. Or do you? 
Because I think that was probably the original sin of Adam and Eve, thinking they knew the difference between right and wrong. And when you think you know the difference between right and wrong, I think this is where you start to compromise your character for worldly gain because you do not have that discernment. That is what caused us to have the problem in the first place. And you know that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You are bright enough to know that means that not all ways can lead to God. You know that. You know that that statement that Jesus made, John chapter 14, verse 6, doesn't make any logical sense with any other religion because Jesus made an exclusive claim. So, either he does lead to God and no other way does, or he doesn't and he's a liar. And the other ways do. You don't have any other choices under Christianity because there is no other logic to believe that all ways lead to the same place. If I go north, I cannot be going east. They don't go to the same place. And you're bright enough to intellectually figure out if Jesus is God. All the evidence is before you. There's enough evidence to make that conclusion. So what is it that holds people back? Sin. All the evidence is there to prove Jesus is God. But there's a desire to pursue worldly pleasures more than Jesus. And so we have these temporary pleasures of life that are more appealing than the everlasting pleasures. And whether it's you want to fit in socially or pursue things professionally or pursue worldly pleasures, whatever it is, you want that more than Jesus. So you want to experience things sexually. You want to pursue things in a material way. You want to do all these, whatever it is. The pursuit of Jesus is not the top priority because deep within yourself, something else is your God. It's not God. It's something else. Now, people are smart enough to do the research, to do the studying, and to figure out that all the evidence for Jesus being God is right there at their disposal. Nothing is hidden. The Word of God is there for us. But what holds them back is their character. Are you like Pilate? You can discern between what is true and what is fraudulent, but you choose the route that compromises your character. You know what is right in your head, but you don't have the character to have it change your life. I'm in that boat too. I do things that I don't want to do, as Paul writes. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Pilate's a smart cookie, man. He is brilliant. He knew Jesus wasn't guilty and that these guys were just full of it. So when these guys said this, he said, these guys said, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee even to this place. Pilate says, ding, I have an out. He's Galilean, thank God. Thanks, Caesar. Verse 7, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. You get that? He sent him over to Herod who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. This guy must have been so happy. But man, things are falling my way. He's Galilean? Woo! Not my problem. Herod's jurisdiction. And we know that Pilate is wanting to climb up the political ladder. He's politically savvy. So what was going through Pilate's conniving head? Well, Pilate had crossed Herod in the past. They aren't the best of friends. These guys don't like each other. 
And in order for him to continue moving on politically and career-wise, he was going to have to rebuild some of the bridges that he burnt with Herod. So you see where this is going? Pilate wanted to bring Herod into the mix. right? So he can be like, Oh, Herod, you're a smart guy. You, you know how to handle this Jesus thing and these Jewish mobs and stuff. You're awesome. And you're so wise. Can you share with me how you would pursue these things and, and how you would deal with this matter? And, and not only that, but it was also an opportunity for Pilate to kind of pass the buck and be like, I don't have to deal with that. This is a smart move by him. I mean, why get involved in a messy situation if you can just pass it along and help someone else feel empowered at the same time? And this is brilliant. Brilliant move by Pilate. And Herod was already in town because it's the Passover. And it's not because he loved God and he loved the Jews. It was because he wanted to make sure everything was in order because so many Jewish pilgrims came into Jerusalem at one time and it made him nervous. Right? This is his jurisdiction. And so he's playing both sides. He's making his appearance before the Jews saying like, hey, I support you guys. And just like any politician, they support you. Yeah, right. But they don't vote the same way you do. Anyway, so he's just there. Hey, I support you guys. I love you guys. But then he's really there because he's seeing like, if there's an insurrectionist in here, take him out. I don't want any problems. I don't want to deal with any problems with these guys. Now, we're going to continue on with Herod next week. We don't have the time to continue with that, but let me close with the closing thought. There are many people who believe that Jesus is a good man. They believe that he's ethical and that he was influential, that he was moral, that he was a brilliant man. There are also many who would say that Jesus was a prophet. You wouldn't get an argument there. I've been witnessing to a Muslim acquaintance who shared with me how all Muslims, especially in his mosque, believe Jesus to be a prophet and that he is well-respected in the Muslim faith. I believe that they believe that too. They believe that he is a prophet. But how many acknowledge Jesus as the Savior who takes this way the sin of the world? That's a question. Because all of us know that we are sinners. Because who in this world is perfect? So all of us are sinners. We've all sinned. And in the eyes of a holy God, one who is perfect, the wages of sin is death. Justice against sin is death. And that is why Jesus died for us. To take the penalty of sin away from us upon Himself. Jesus, the Son of God, justified the justice of God and He reconciled sinful people to a holy God. That same message was rejected by many of those who were present in Jesus' day. And it's the same message that's rejected today. Jesus is still rejected and despised today, not because he's one of the most influential people in world history or because he is a great moral teacher who has affected ethics worldwide to this day. What many people deny, what they reject, and what they despise of Jesus is his exclusive claim that he is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin in the eyes of a holy God. That's what's rejected. If you do not believe Jesus to be your Savior, you are denying, rejecting, and despising God, and you need to repent this morning and give your life to Jesus. And I'm not doing that in a condemning way. I'm just wanting to present to you the biblical fact that that's what the Bible presents. And if you do believe Jesus to be your Savior, where is your heart towards those who don't have Jesus as their Savior? Because without Jesus, people are going to hell. And hell is simply absent the presence of God. Right? 
if you broke it down, it's absence, the presence of God. Do you care about that? Do you care that people aren't with a creator who created beauty, who created reasoning and thought and logic and love and compassion and grace and mercy? Do you care enough to tell them about the love of Jesus, Jesus who died for your loved ones, your family, your friends, because if not you, then who? It was just Thanksgiving. If he wasn't shared there by you, then who's going to do it? The Apostle wrote in Romans chapter 10, verses 9-17, through 17, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. If this comes across a little bit harsh, I can't water down the Gospel. And I exhort you, please don't water down the Gospel. Jesus died for the Gospel. You know, Be bold, but use your discernment when sharing the gospel. Please don't withhold the gospel. And I found that people get stuck on this number one thing nowadays, is building relationships. They use that as a buzzword about sharing the gospel. And I think building relationships is the right way to go, and it's a great thing. But in some of our building relationships, we're loving in an earthly sense, but not a spiritual sense. Not a sense of everlasting. And some of you may be loving people to hell because you're hospitable and you're friendly and you're caring and you're serving and you're exuding mercy and doing everything you can for these people, but you haven't helped the people to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10. It is not your love that saves them. It is God's love. God's love saves people. And some of you are stopping short of preaching the whole gospel because you're afraid to offend or for whatever reason. And you're stopping on the nine-yard line and you're not going into the end zone. Right? You're not fulfilling the whole thing and you're stopping there. And I'm not saying to ignore relationships. Absolutely not. They are crucial. They are vital. But you need to seek the Holy Spirit's prompting as to when to be bold and when to share and when to say those things. And you have to respect people. My father-in-law died of pancreatic cancer in April. And he told my wife, don't ever share Jesus with me, ever. Don't ever share him with me again. And she did this when she was a teenager. She was in high school sharing Jesus with her family and stuff like that. And he was like, don't you ever. For this, I don't want to disclose my wife's age. Time later. This is many years later. Three kids later, married later, he's on his deathbed. Ever since I met my wife, she told me this story about her dad, and I'm a pastor. I've just been praying for the guy. 
and been asking, Lord, just show me when you want me to share with this guy. Just open the door for me and I'll do it. I don't care if he yells at me. I don't care if he's grumpy. I don't care anything like that. And he used to like wearing these grumpy dwarf shirts, like saying, I'm grumpy. And so he's really grumpy. And so I'm just praying and I'm just praying. I'm just praying. It's Tuesday. He's on his deathbed. And I felt the Holy Spirit's prompting, do it now. So I did. And he received Jesus. He died the Friday after. It was a deathbed conversion. Those don't happen very often. There's only one in the entire Bible. It's the guy hanging next to Jesus on the cross. I have been blessed to be part of two because my grandmother was the same way on her deathbed. She accepted Jesus. We need to be practicing discernment as to when that is. We need to respect people, right? We need to respect them. If they don't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. But when the Holy Spirit prompts us to go forward and be bold, it's time. And we need to share those things. And we need to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is leading us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is bold, it is harsh, and it is because you love us. That you want to present to us not what's sugar-coated, but what is truth. We ask, God, that you would enable us to present truth with grace. Sometimes we come across too harsh and sometimes we come across very abrasive Lord the information the text itself may be that way Lord help us to have soft hearts towards people it is not our job to judge it is not our job to condemn may we just be faithful and obedient to whatever you're directing us to do in Jesus name Amen